Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. And now, please welcome Neil Jordan. Hello, thank you very much. Okay, and congratulations. Beautiful thank you. film. Um, I guess the, uh, the New York word for somebody who would dare to remake Bob Lifflin-Bohr would be chutzpah. So what, tell us about your relationship with the, fil- with the original film and what that movie, what the, the Melville film meant to you and why you wanted um, to, to take a crack at it. Well, I love the film, you know, but I didn't think that it would be something I'd, I'd uh, ever want to remake. Uh, my producer, Stephen Woolley, suggested it. And uh, somebody in Warner Brothers was thinking along the same lines. So that's how it happened. It was presented to me, and, you know, I looked at the original movie, and, uh, you know, I was very nervous about it, but I said, I'll try and write a script. And I began to write the script and the story. I, I began to double up on the story, you know, and use the, the basic story in the, of the, Mel- the plot of the Melville film as a decoy for the plot that my Nick Nolte Bob was co- coming up with, you know. And then it became interesting. It became like... Uh, a variation of the original film, and I thought maybe if I make this, I'll do something that won't, you know, stamp all over the original, and that will be kind of a variation on it. What was it about the original film that was inspiring for you? It was a film that inspired a lot of filmmakers. It, it had a, a, f- a freedom yeah. to it, a romanticism. I mean, yeah. what, what did you find in it? Well, I mean, it's, it's actually quite a classical film, I think. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people say they talk about the French New Wave and all that, but the cameras in, in the Melville movie is terribly static, you know, and it's got this. Uh, beautiful, you know, kind of um, patina of light and shade. Well, I think what was good in, was the fact that it was somebody, I think it was when it was re-released in New York, I read somewhere, somebody said, some critic said, it's the only film noir that ends happily, you know? <laughs> and I thought that, that that basic movement, you know, from darkness to the light was really great about it. Um, the, you know, one of the wonderful things about both films, both the Melville and yours, is the nighttime Photography. Uh, Melville said at the time that um, he made his film at night because you write love letters at night, and he felt his film was sort of a love letter to Paris. But could you talk about shoot all the you know the the shooting at night and the well what that um, the I mean it was added I mean in in because uh, Nick plays a, a junkie I made him obviously as you see in a guy who sticks needles in his fingers <laughs> and he's. Um, so I wanted the photography to be to feel like a, like a withdrawal or like a hangover, you know. And I wanted to um, obviously most of these stories kind of happen at night anyway, you know. But I, I wanted all the lights to be too flary, and you know the uh, the uh, camera movements to be jagged. And the uh, we used that um, double printing thing, step printing, you know, where the mm-hmm. where the, the the kind of movement shutters. So so, so right. it's it's not it's not like Melville's film photographically at all, really. Right. But we were lucky enough to get the old town at Nice and to be able to use it as a set, basically. I mean, we built all those lights into the uh, entire complex of streets, you know, so we used it almost like a big set. You, know. um, you made a few key changes from, from the Melville film. You, the setting of the film is different. You're not, this is not um, set in Paris as the Melville film was. Could you talk about how you changed the setting? And then also the main character, the idea of an American yeah. being the main character. Well, I mean, uh, the most obvious thing to do, I suppose, would be to set in America. <laughs> it would be... That's probably what the studio would have wanted, you know. But, like Las um, Vegas. Hmm? In Las yeah, Vegas, or like or New York and Atlantic City or something like that, you know. Yeah. But uh, 
Um, I looked at Paris and I looked at the casino in Deauville, which was tiny. You know, it's, it's hardly there. It's only about three tables in it. And Deauville actually is a very British city. You know, it's, got this, it's in Normandy and it looks like a town in the south of England. So it, it, it hadn't got much romance to it. So we, we, I just, I, you know, everybody knows Nice from the Cannes Festival, but nobody ever spends any time there. So I yeah. spent a bit of time wandering around and uh, I thought that we could create a real, you know, f- an environment full of... Um, full of richness and darkness and kind of danger out of there. Um, and the, um, the, the world of the casino, there's a real uh, romanticism and a beauty to the way you show the casino, which is much more developed than in the, than in the Melville film. I mean, and that, that seems to be something you've really brought to it. If you, could you just talk about it? Yeah, but the Melville, the Melville uh, casino sequence, they're very elegant, actually. They, they, they play Chemin de Fer, you know? Or Chemin à Fer, is it called? That, that four-card, that's odd little game. Mm-hmm. Which uh, with the big paddles and they turn. So there's yeah. a great elegance and ritual to those gambling sequences in the Mel- in the Melville movie. But I mean, casinos are generally. Uh, you've, I'm so sure everybody's been to Las Vegas. You know, they're full of neon lights and they're full of slot machines. And um, even the casino in, in in Monte Carlo, it's designed by Garnier, the guy who did the Opera House in Paris. But all of the detail is way up towards the ceiling. You know, so all you see really is a shabby carpet and a, you know, a load of tables and a load of um, overdressed you know, Russian and French people playing. You know? So we had to, we kind of made up the casino really out of a load of interiors in, in, uh, in and around Nice, this very rich uh, art deco, you know, turn of the century and later 20s um, interiors. So we used a whole sequence of those to create this kind of mystery and warmth really. And could you talk about the, the casting in this film is incredibly varied and, and very rich and gives so much texture to the film. I mean, I, the two I want to ask you about are, are Nick Nolte, because that's so critical, and then the young actress, uh, Nutsa Kakinadze, um, I guess who was 17, or very, really a newcomer at the time, who plays Anna. Yeah, well, Nick is, um, I mean, Nick was kind of, he emerged as the, the only casting for the role. As you, as you imagine, it's very tricky doing something like this, you know, because it's um, the lines are, the di- the dialogue is very important, and I was kind of, I put myself out there with the way people spoke, you know. I decided to have them just talk constantly in this uh, mm-hmm. hard-boiled way, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. if it was a twenty million dollar star, they're all too well preserved these days to to convince you, you know. And yeah. I went to see Nick in in um, San Francisco. He was in a play with Sam Shepard. Uh, called the late Henry Moss, and the entire play seemed to consist of Nick being kicked around the stage by Sean Penn, you know, <laughs> literally. And he was he was subjected to savage kind of uh, kind of indignity. And I met him afterwards, and I thought this this guy is perfect for this role because mm-hmm. you can see it on his face. And so I, that was my decision to make the movie when he said he'd do it. Basically. And you didn't have him in mind, or when you were writing it, you didn't have a particular actor in mind. No, I didn't have anybody in mind actually. Yeah. And. Um, I, I did want to ask you about writing because you you were a writer, you know, and really an established um, short story writer and novelist before mm. you went into film. And I, I was curious how you made that that transition, that transition because your first film, I mean, you did Angel and uh, Company of Wolves, you know, terrific first and second film. But how did you m- make that move? Um, well, I just I just was lucky. I was in Ireland. I was writing fiction and I was writing some screenplays that were being made as tiny budget independent movies mm-hmm. and. Uh, any time I saw something that w- that I'd written get made, I was always very unhappy with the results. And I, I sent it. I wrote a script that uh, John Borman agreed to produce for me. And Channel Four, Film Four, had just set up then to make uh, you know writer director type films, and they did, 
But you know, they were gen I was lucky enough for them to back my first feature film, Angel. So that, that's how it happened to me, really. Um, I, I cut you off uh, about. I did want to hear about the actress. Uh, oh, Nutza. Nutza, because uh, yeah. I guess another sort of another interesting parallel to the Melville film is that the young actress in that film, who was I think 15 years old, was discovered on, literally on the streets by Melville. She was driving around. Um, yeah, yeah. And could you talk about how you discovered Nutza? Nutza. <laughs> well, I mean, Nutza. I didn't discover Nutza. She'd done one film um, called 28, 28 Stolen Kisses or something. I forget the title. It's a tiny little Georgian movie. Yeah. And she. She was um, very. In, she was very good in that. But uh, when I met her, I hadn't seen that. You know, she came to London, and I just did a quick camera test with her, and uh, I just thought she was extraordinary. You know, that she had a poise, and uh, uh, she had this great deep voice, but yet all this youth. This, you know, she's so, so kind of like a deer or something. You know, and uh, when I began to shoot some stuff with her, um, I could just see this extraordinary thing going on in her face. You know, so. Um, I think she's great, you know. It's her, it's her first real performance, this, I think. But I, yeah. I hope she does a lot of good things, you know. And, and the rest of the cast is very international, very diverse. I, can, I can think of it as a Mediterranean film, really, because, you know, everybody from North Africa is trying to get into those Mediterranean cities, and everybody from <laughs> what, the former Soviet Union is trying to get in there, and from Turkey, and, you know, everywhere. So it's, there's a, there's a, it's a kind of racial melting pot there in, in, in a... A very different way than America is. I don't know how to describe it really, but it's uh, maybe it's a bit more uh, abrasive there in some ways, you know. So I mean, I'd written the Russian, the guy from Vladivostok. I'd written in the uh, the two, you know, Said and Paolo as, yeah. as two North African guys, and um, obviously Nutsa was Russian, you know, or so she was Russian, but she's Georgian actually. Right. But. Um, so I went to Paris and I just met everybody I could, you know, and I, I'm sure you all know Saeed Tegmoui yeah, from Three Kings and from Lahan. And uh, there's a wonderful young actor that I found called Wasini Embarak. He plays Saeed, the guy who shot. Now, he is extraordinary, mm. you know. He's, uh, he's got this street quality. He's, he's got a very tiny part in the movie, but he is an extraordinary actor. And Amir Costa Rica. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> well, I mean, he, he, Amir is a great director, of course, but he's, he was in one movie called The Widow of St. Pierre. Mm -hmm. You've seen that, I'm sure, yeah. And he, I just asked him to please, he seemed perfect for the role for this uh, rather strange um, security guitar playing man, you know? And uh, so it's, it was, and I had the, the Polish twins were two directors themselves, right. you know? Yeah, so, right. so it was um, like subjecting these directors to what they subject others to. It was a bit of fun. That <laughs> Uh, one of the th the themes that you really brought to this script was the art, the the theme about the paintings and the art and the um, oh. the idea of originals and oh. copies, which is in a sense what you're in a sense what you're doing by kind working, of. I mean, kind of, yeah. yeah. Kind but, I mean, but could you talk about how you developed that theme? And how well, that I mean, I, I felt a bit bad about making a remake. You know, I felt I felt a bit shabby, and <laughs> uh, you know, I felt a bit. Uh, what would I say? I felt a bit like a faker, you know? And um, then uh, uh, I gave Bob this Picasso and decided to make that a fake Picasso and came, you know, came up with the ideas of the paintings, the real and the fake paintings. So in a way, that it, uh, I was just, I suppose, playing. It was an internal dialogue in a way, you know, playing with the idea of, you know, what's, is there any virtue in a fake at all, really, you know? Um, something that uh, it might be 
uh, I don't know how easy it is for you to talk about, but the, the thing that to me is so strong in your films is the mood that they create. You sustain um, a, a kind of lyrical, romantic mood through, and it's expressed through camera work, through music. Uh, it's a quality that your films have that's very, very strong. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how, how you sustain that when, you know, how you create that on, on the set, how you, how that you, happens. It's, um, one is not aware of what one does, really. You know, you, know, mm -hmm. you, you do things uh, because you are what you are, I suppose. It's, um, I mean, this feels like a Neil Jordan film in every... Yeah, well, thank you. Frame. Is, that a, is that a compliment? Well, I, I meant it <laughs> as a compliment. I guess somebody could mean it... It know, could mean it the opposite. The other way. Couldn't it the other way? <laughs> no, it's, I mean... The, this, this thing had to be all texture, really. You know, it had to be, it had to be all light and shade, and it had to be, it had to be, had a, have a rotten kind of underground kind of scummy texture to the whole thing, you know? <laughs> and I, I, I don't know, really. That, that's just the way it, 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 one starts by looking through the camera, you know, really. And, or you don't start, you, you start actually by trying to conceive what the image should be. And this, myself and Chris Menges, the cinematography. We, we looked. At, we looked at a lot of Hong Kong movies. You know, hmm. you know these um, Wong Kar Wai and all these yeah. wonderful, wonderful uh, movies that are shot in these cities that are entire kind of cathedrals of light and neon. You know, I envy the people who shoot over there because they never have to place a light anywhere. It seems to me, and because yeah. because it's they, they, you know they walk down these uh, shopping malls and all of their, they're fully lit. You know. Yeah. And uh, so, but Nice is not as full of light as that. So we had to kind of build all sorts of practicals into every environment we were in, you know. And it gradually led to a, you know, the, the contrast between the practicals gradually led to kind of a, a certain kind of image, you know. And uh, then when we came to the casino, the uh, the casino really is is constructed of lights. In a way, the set is made out of these huge table lamps, you know, and they had a different quality to them. They had a different warmth and a more richer texture, you know, than the, than the street kind of neon feelings that we'd yeah. worked with earlier. So that, that's how one builds it up, really. And also, in terms of mood, um, could you talk about your work with Nick Nolte? Because a lot of the texture of the film comes through how he delivers his lines and how the language sounds coming out of his mouth. Yeah, if you could hear it. That's the, that was, right. <laughs> can, could you hear it? You could hear it, yeah? Because we had, we had enormous amount of tr it was it was dicey. <laughs> well, I mean, your face as a director, you're faced with a problem. You see, the actor give this wonderful performance with this sense of secrecy, you know, and this uh, low mumbled thing. And uh, you say, do I get him to articulate every line, you know, and to uh, so you can hear every word because then the uh, performance would be different, you know. Yeah. And there was one scene in particular which we had to ADR entirely. The scene in the church. I remember saying to Nick, if you knew we would have to go through this entire scene, it took us about three days, mm. and you knew how much work we were going to have to put to even get people to hear what you're saying, would you have still played it that way? And he said, yeah, he would, because he, you, an actor has to find a way to play the scene, you know? Mm -hmm. And that secretive thing was his way. But, I mean, Nick just entered into the part, really. He built up his own history for it, and uh, he kind of knew that recovery business more better than I did, you know? Because... <laughs> Because <laughs> I haven't recovered yet. Okay, yeah, let's open. It. Let's see if anybody has any questions or comments. Was okay. it? Was so, he, sorry, yeah. No, no. Just uh, I mean, the, the the question was about the motivation of Bob going into the casino. That in the original, he knows he's going to get caught, and there's a there's a change um, in your approach. Yeah. See, I was confused by the. I didn't know why they arrested him at the end in the original. I mean, he'd done nothing. He, he committed right. no crime. 
you know, the, everybody else was around outside and they were all being shot and stuff like that, weren't they? I mean, he knew that he'd been betrayed in the original, but I wasn't aware that he knew the entire game was finished, you know? And there's a voiceover, there's Melville's voiceover, doesn't he, where he says, uh, Lady Luck made him forget why he was there. Because Bob, Bob was in the casino meant to, meant to open some door or something, wasn't he? And he forgot to do it, you see? So, so I, don't, I don't think he, uh, in the original, he, he, he knew the game was up and he went in there. Okay, were you inspired by Nan Golden's work, the photographer Nan Golden, in terms of the visuals? No, I wasn't, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, a, oh, a, photo a New York photographer, I guess. Who, no, I who wasn't. Had. I'm sorry, I don't... Okay. Should, I, I will look at her work, though. Okay, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> well, one thing about that, I mean, I'll, just to follow up on that, but there's a feeling of um, spontaneity that the film has, and I know it... I know sometimes you see a movie that looks like it's very spontaneous yes. and maybe it wasn't in the making of it, but... Um, it well, yeah, there was... I mean, I mean, that kind of spontaneity is, is, is really worked at, you know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's, but it, it, I mean, it, the, the, what you are photographing obviously is sp spontaneous events, you know what I mean? But the, yeah. um, the, uh, the, so, some of those shots were deep, were really complicated and, and um, they, the end result feels like, you know, it feels almost like camera verite, but the... The, the elements involved are so complicated that it actually is not achieved through those means. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of heavily designed in a way. Why do you decide to put the, uh, give the Polish brothers an accent? Uh, why do the American actors, the Polish brothers, um, or directors, the Polish brothers, speak with an Irish accent? Okay. When I looked at their performance, you know, and I, when I looked at them, they looked like these, uh, like really skinny, underfed guys from Tala in Dublin that I kind of knew, and I wanted them to be like that, so that's why I went that way. Okay, did you think about doing more looping to make all the lines? Because the lines are so beautifully written, but not, not everyone is... Well, I tell okay. you, we went to enormous lengths to try and make, get people to hear this film, you know? I think it's also because there's so much dialogue, you know? You're probably not used to hearing films with, with all that dialogue, you know? And not all of it is well written. <laughs> no, but I mean, sorry. The bits you didn't hear were really dumb lines, you know? <laughs> I hope. Uh, did did you ever think of using voiceover because that's such a t tempting thing I guess from the I Melville. didn't know whose the voiceover would be you yeah. know really you know I I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't actually know I okay. didn't okay the motivation behind some of the freeze frames that that um, scenes end with we shot a lot of sequences you know at twelve frames and ninety degree shutter and we double printed them to twenty four you know double printed them so they'd run at twenty four in the end so hmm. and you get this staggered effect yeah and as we as the Tony Lawson the editor was cutting the movie um, he began to experiment with those freeze frames because it related to that kind of image and they became a like a, a, a grammar that we are they became a thing we were using we kind of I mean um, they are eventually they, they were ways to express to just you know kind of mo moments where the character would go from one point to another or the story would take it an unwarranted kind of leap. And it became a language we were playing with, you know. Not everybody likes them, I know, but... Um, How did you decide which, which uh, scenes you would film that way, that you would film 12, in the 12 frame? Generally scenes with, with uh, you know, with, with kind of lateral movement, you know, with violent movement in it. It's, mm. uh, it's, it's the kind of thing Steven Spielberg did in, um, at the beginning sequence in uh, Saving Private Ryan, you know. But there's a lot of that kind of movement. It, it, it gives you this almost newsreel effect, you know. So that's what the, those freeze frames came out of. Okay, Annette? 
the Leonard Cohen song. Was that a new song, or did you, did you find that? No, that was, he brought out a great album last year called uh, Ten New Songs. That's <laughs> what it was called, and it's from that. And I, I was looking for, I also tried a lot of Tom Waits, and the Tom Waits was too much like Nick Nolte, you know? Right. And, and he kind of <laughs> dragged the whole thing into a fog of, you know, something or other. And Leonard Cohen, but both their voices suited the character, you know, and Leonard Cohen's voice was just, it just seemed to come out, it had the same depth and the same kind of, you know, the same tenor as Nick's voice. So I could have used a few more of his songs, but it would have been too much. Okay, right here. No, no, not at all. No, 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 no. I've, I've, I've never used, done this before. I was just going for a very jagged photographic style, really, you know, really to the feeling when you wake up and you're in desperate need of something you said, you're right, you know, really. That, that's what I was going with. Okay, if you could talk a little bit more about the, char the character of Vladimir, the computer operator, guitar player, and you know, if that was how much that was like built on the, I guess, the real Kutsterit set. Well, no, no, I, I saw a concert um, with uh, that band called Radiohead, and they had this laser device where they, uh, the, the laser was bouncing around and was obviously responding to what was being played by the different instruments. So I went to the guy who, 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 who invented that laser device. He's one of these tech nuts, a delightful man from Sheffield in England or something like that. And I, I wrote it into the script that this was a, a device that uh, this character Vladimir was working on while he was trying to work out how to rob, how to undo the security system he'd built, you know? So he was that kind of character, really. And um, normally those characters in movies are nerdy guys with big glasses, aren't they, and stuff like that. And they're, they're kind of um, thin and skinny and... And uh, I, I just, when I, I met Amir, I said, let's make him this big, vital, you know, cigar-chomping kind of guy. And Amir does play the guitar, you know. I didn't know he played the guitar when I met him. But, I mean, my character had to. He was, you know, copying these Jimi Hendrix riffs and stuff like that. And uh, so that was the character, so that's what he did. Okay, so if you could talk about your collaboration with Chris Menges and how you work with him to get the feeling that you want, you know, your style and your... This, this is uh, more glamorous than most things he does, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's uh, it's kind of richer in a way, and it's it's in some ways more structured. I've made three f films with Chris now, four I think it is, and he's one of the best cameramen there are. He is he tends to be very inarticulate, you know. Well, it's true actually. I'm, I'm not. I don't mean this as 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 not not a compliment. You know what I mean? But he strives to create a specific image that will relate to the specific film, you know? And it's, uh, he goes to extraordinary lengths to do that, you know? And it's, um, and for this film, he, he kind of rethought his photographic history in a way for this film, you know what I mean? Because we decided to take a different approach, you know? And we decided to, uh, you know, to um, just throw the book away slightly, you know, in terms of um, his aesthetic in a way, you know? Okay, is there a change in Irish culture recently uh, because of the opening up, I guess, of the country um, in, um, that relates to an opening up in visual yeah. style? There's, I mean, traditionally, Irish culture has uh, been made with that which is cheapest, you know, which needs... I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't need money to uh, use language, you know what I mean? You don't have to pay to, uh, to uh, learn to play a jig and a, a reel on the, fiddle, on the fiddle, you know what I mean? And uh, I mean, traditionally, Irish culture has been built around words. There's, there's um, the, any significant architecture there has come from England, you know, the architectural styles. And um, they're quite beautiful, actually. But uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's lately, the, um, obviously, filmmaking is, is, is taking 
is, is, is making its mark on the culture. And, um, you know, the visual arts are becoming much more important. It's probably a function of the, the place becoming a, a modern place, you know. And uh, it's, um, it's I, don't, I don't know what to say about that, but it is true what you say, yeah. It's, and the, uh, the literary culture is still there, but it's no longer the pr predominant thing. Okay, and I want to ask you as, as a sort of last question. You've said that um, for you, and also I guess for Nick Nolte, this was a way to make a European film, a film outside of the Ameri sort of American system or the Hollywood system. Um, yeah. Can you talk about? Yeah. Um, no, it's just, it, I suppose this could have so easily been set in America. You, do you understand what I mean? That, um, you know, I just took a decision to make it in, in Europe, and it's, um, I mean, I'm not sure... Uh, how much, wh whether this film will be welcomed in France, you know, because they'll probably see it as a very American film, you know, mm. and they probably will actually. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, but the, I mean, we got this division, don't we, where yeah. American films are muscular and huge and massive, and European films have, have almost, almost to their cost, become, def define themselves as, you know, as art films in a way, you know, and, uh, I, th I thought this is a just a muscular, you know, straightforward story. You know, it's not; it hasn't got any pretensions to be an art movie or anything like that. And I thought I'd set it in Europe, <laughs> an American kind of film in Europe. Do you understand yeah. what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to uh, wish you luck with it, and thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.